nobody ever gives nobody ever throws my line back back when I say a plan. I always say when somebody says, "Oh, we got a plan," I go, "Custer had a plan too." We all know how that turned out. But anyway, <laughs> always gets me some good looks with that one. <clears throat> Not everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. In the, the face. Oh, I should have said that too. Where am I? The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? To cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. Alright, you want to do the prisoner? Alright then. The Village People, an exploration of the prison. With Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lamb. Hello, and welcome once again to our lovely village. We, of course, are the village idiots. I am... I am the doctor... But not that one. But not that one. And that was... uh, Would you like to be the rook? Or would you like to be something else this episode, Andy? I am fine being the rook. All the hope. The hope and anchor. Who can say? Mm, Well... And we also have two other chess pieces. I will let them name the, themselves. Paul Spataro, who will most likely say he's the king. Oh, no, I am a pawn. There's no question. <laughs> and Mr. David, Dave, who we're not sure what his real name is. But I'm, Captain, right the, I'm Captain of the Palatska. You're Captain. Oh, yeah, there you go. You're a traitor. Oh. No, it's just that that's the village's ship. Oh, we're, we're getting too, maybe we're getting a little too ahead for anybody who hasn't seen the episode. But if they haven't, why the heck are you listening to us? Go watch the episode. Today's episode we are discussing is Checkmate, which is the third one in our viewing order based on the KTEH San Jose Viewing order. Did I say reading order? I meant viewing order. I'm sorry. I'm just so confused because I can't tell one side from the other. The wardens from the prisoners. It's so easy. You just got to know black from white. Ah, but that's not that easy, as we will see. So at this point, uh, anybody have any prisoner chit-chat news? Uh, I, I, I have some, but I figured I'd ask, ask around. No, it's still over. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned to Andy this this week while I was watching Top Gear, they had uh, one of their openings of their episodes was in Port. Is it Port Port Marion? Port Mar- Port. No, nope. no, you're oh, at Port Marion. Oh, okay. That's not the way it looks when I read it, but that's the way I've heard it. So it's like yeah, it looks it looks spelled Port Marion, isn't it? Oh, okay, that's what it is. That's what was throwing me off. Well, you know, you guys change freaking letters yeah he's welsh now do those do <laughs> oh that that's even extra extra hard it's not portmanteau <laughs> a poor man's toe what <laughs> so anyway the, the they uh the opening of the episode they are uh all their cars are parked in the village and then they go off driving through wales the end <laughs> yeah, they show him where the car park is that I pointed out. If he'd just gone that direction and down to the dead, he'd have been out. Yep. 
So with that, I guess I will hand the reins or I will hand the chessboard and the big megaphone over to Andy <laughs> so we can all yell out our uh, our um, moves to each other. Okay. That got chess. a little annoying. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you play chess with real people, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okie dokie. This episode of The Prisoner, Checkmate, was directed by Don Chafee and written by Gerald Keltzer. It first aired on ITV Friday the 24th of November 1967 and first aired on CBS on Saturday the 17th of August 1968. It seems all right to me. Yeah. Don't let it fool you. We keep you under close surveillance. A game of chess with human pieces. That's a good move, was it? I know a better one. You see the gentleman on the screen? You love him passionately, devotedly. You would do anything for him. Anything. When can you be ready? tonight. This time tomorrow we'll be free. See this thrilling adventure of The Prisoner on this channel. If I didn't know you better, I'd think you didn't love me anymore. I don't. And if you didn't love me, why did you give me this locket? The TV time synopsis is thus. Chess is a game of subtle moves, and the prisoner wonders just what they are aimed at when he takes part in an unusual game being played in the village. The board covers the whole of a courtyard. The chess pieces are human beings. The moves indicated by two men in charge, and the prisoner takes his position as the queen's pawn in more ways than one. But is it a dangerous game? He cannot hope to win. Number two in this episode is played by Peter Wingard. His brother Jason was the mastermind in uh, in the X Men. Yeah, they looked a lot alike. You you guys do know why, right? Why what? Why Jason Wingard looks like Peter Wingard? I guess because he was based on him. Yes. yes. Okay. And his most and the character of Jason King, who is in Department S, and then subsequently span off into his own show. I watched one of those last night because, in all honesty, I'd never seen one. Jason King it didn't earn in America. That's why. Yeah, it was it was like on. Uh, I was able to to watch it on YouTube. It was all right. Maybe it's just you know, I just. It seems like he seems to be stronger or more dramatic or forceful in other roles, which I have a comment about this episode actually as well. Like I've seen him in, well, Flash Gordon, he plays Clytus. Um, Clytus, I'm bored. I'm bored. (laughs) Number two, I'm bored. Yes, number one. This lovely little place called The Village. This is number six. I like to play with my... Anyway. Uh, where where am I going with this? Oh, you um, can say at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but I also remember him in an episode, uh, the Hellfire Club from the Avengers, which yes, <laughs> and, 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 you know, has uh, yes, 
has uh, M-, M appeal in it as uh, the Black Queen, pretty much. Yeah, it, uh, well, she's indelibly etched into the minds of many a teenage boy who saw it yeah. at just the right moment. Oof. I don't know. It was etched into a 53-year-old man's mind. Essentially, for, for oh. Dave and Paul, who may not have seen that Avengers episode, the costume Jean Grey was in that Uncanny X-Men comic is what Diana Rigg was wearing. Mm-hmm. I did not know yep. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she's got a... That entire Hellfire Club is based heavily upon that episode of the Avengers with added Jason Wingard. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That is very interesting because I had no clue. So I guess uh, either John Byrne, Chris Claremont, or both of them are big fans of this uh, type of television show. Now... In that episode, or is it? Am I getting this confused with another thing somewhere else? And uh, I seem to remember. I know they throw their glasses into the into the into the fireplace. Hellfire! Hellfire! Is there a show? I seem to remember it's black and white. That like every time somebody says the word torture, then everybody else in the room goes torture, torture, torture. I don't remember. I've seen people throw glasses into fireplaces before, though. Yeah. Okay. Then maybe it didn't come from that because I was. Yeah. But yeah. He's uh, uh, Jason Wingard. Uh, uh, Jason Wingard. See, Peter Wingard in that Hellfire Club episode. He's he's more formidable. I'm not saying he's not formidable as number two. I mean, he's real formidable when he beats up that piece of balsa wood in his karate outfit. <laughs> oh yeah. I've seen I'm like, I've seen really? seven year olds do that by the way. <laughs> yeah, I was like, come on, dude. But I think in, at least he could have got you a bigger looking board and maybe pre cut it or something. I, I suspect back in the nineteen late nineteen sixties, the uh, martial arts weren't as widespread as they became because I think that became a much bigger or much popular thing among the general populace with the uh, you know those when those movies became big in the seventies. That's, yeah, so that's when people started like a, signing up their children for martial arts per training and things, and they all learned about, you know, breaking a piece of wood and how you could do it and all of that. But in the late 60s, I would think it wouldn't be as well known. I think I, it was that, outlived. I, I, I was going to say, I think he just wanted to show off his chest hair and his... Yeah. And his... Jason, Jason, Jason Wingard, I'm doing it now. <laughs> Peter Wingard added that bit because his uh-huh. direction for this was basically play as yourself. He was given no notes on his character. Uh, he says in an interview in this book um, that was originally Number Six magazine that when he was he was in talks to do it, there was originally the idea that he would be a semi-permanent number two, mm. and then they decided to go with the idea of having a different one every week to add to the paranoia. Mm. The thing with Wingard, I think that in Depart- have you ever seen Department S? No, I haven't right. seen any of those yet. I did an episode of Palace of Glitter and Delights about Department S and Jason Wingard. Go and listen to it, because I need the lo- I need the download figures. <laughs> uh, Department S is very much an X Files type show. Twenty, Ooh. thirty odd years before the X Files, Department S is the department of the government that investigates the strange and unusual. So trains that just disappear, uh, and then three hours later, people arrive at the destination with no idea where that three hours has gone. That kind of mystery is what Department S investigates. And it's three agents who investigate these. Jason Wingard... Jason. We've got too many X-Men comics. 
Peter Wingard plays Jason King. Jason King is Jessica Fletcher. He is a successful novelist who works with Department S because his novelist brain will come up with wacky scenarios that their most straight-laced ideas won't support. And in a supporting role like that, he's brilliant because he's he, he kind of walks in and steals the scene every now and again. But essentially, that's that's what he where he's best, where he walks in, steals his moments and goes away. Once it's spun off into its own show, Jason can be slightly overbearing. OK, because that was kind of. Yeah. All right. Because I. Yeah. The one I watched, I was kind of like, hmm, wow, I don't know. Mm. What? Because mm. he's got no one to play off at that point. Um, so it's it's Jason King is not as successful a show as Department S is, in my opinion. I think you could bring back Department S today and retool it and revamp it and bring it back and it would work. Jason King, not so much. Well, wouldn't technically, well, I mean, this is a stretch, but didn't they do that and call it Castle? Yeah, essentially. So, <laughs> But at least he's got a reason for being where he is in Department S and in Castle. Once it's the Jason King show, you're like, well, why is he getting involved in this stuff? Mm. So, And I, I was looking forward to this one because I like Wingard a lot. If you've ever looked up Wingard as a person, he is fascinating. Everything about his life is a lie. <laughs> including his name, his date of birth, where he was born, where he's brought up, how old he was when he died. All of this stuff is unknown and contradicted throughout his entire life. He's a fascinating bloke. He really is. Well, I'm not, so it's worth looking into his past. I'm not particularly familiar with him. In fact, I'm not really familiar with him at all, to be honest with you. Uh, but I thought he, in this at least, I felt like he was kind of underplaying it a little bit. He was kind of pulled back. And you kind of could feel, especially, you know, you throw in the little break the piece of balsa wood thing, like that he could explode at any moment, but didn't, like, you know, like he's seething underneath somehow. Uh, like that That's at least the feeling I got from his number two. Yeah, well, I, that's where I was going as well. I was expecting, because I didn't remember him so much in this episode, although I remembered the plot and the visuals, which are very, you know, prominent. I was expecting him to be a bit more over the top and a bit more memorable. And he is. He's very low key in this. I, but if you ever saw him being interviewed, he's not. Jason King is campy and over the top. Wingard himself isn't. So perhaps having that direction play as yourself harmed the performance. No, I think if he had, I think if he had been over the top, I don't think I would have liked it as much. I think I liked him pulled that, back. Yeah, I think maybe that's what I was expecting from his other on-screen roles well my well my note is that uh i said peter is underused and then and then i wrote or is he and that would make sense with what you said that he was told he might have been a recurring character so starting out like maybe in his head he was building like I, i'm going to start like this and work to something towards the end but you know if he was going to be on multiple uh times so uh since we're on the subject of number two, did you guys have any alternate castings for number two? I did. Yeah, I went. Go ahead, Andy. You too. go first. Who does number two work for? Who does number two work 
That's right, buddy. You show that turn who's boss. Uh, I went David Tennant. When I was when I did that Palace episode, I recast Department S with three modern day actors, and the one I thought could most mimic Jason King's snake hit sexiness and that casual laid back, slightly loose, slightly embarrassing granddad older uncle thing who still thinks he's sexy to 16 year olds i thought tenant could pull that off based on his performance in good omens and the remake of fright night i uh i didn't go modern day i went i went back about 30 years or so uh and i was thinking 1980s version peter o'toole yeah o'toole would have been a great one I went with uh, a blast from the past, uh, Alan Rickman. Alan Sir. Rickman would have been a great number two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what, as well, I don't want to derail anyone. We talked about this in the first episode, I think, who would be six. And we were like, I don't really know who could pull off Patrick McGoo. I just watched the first episode of Sandman, and I'm watching it going, Charles Dance could be number six. Oh. You know, it's... It's funny you mention that because I came up with another alternate for for number six that I don't think I had in that first episode as well, and that's uh, Toby Stevens. Yeah, yeah. Who uh, played um, Gustav Graves in, in Die Another Day? Yeah. And Ooh. also, I think he did a much better job in. Um, I liked his acting in Lost in Space. Yeah, he was Professor John Robbins. Yeah. And for you Bond fans, I didn't he's realize James it, Bond. He's been James Bond. Yeah. In a bunch of audio dramas for the books. Yep. He's very good. <laughs> I I uh, am like one of the few defenders of Die Another Day out there. <laughs> so, I I still maintain it's fun, and I think the first hour is brilliant. That's that's all. That's my whole argument. Is just it was fun, and that's what I wanted from a James Bond movie at that time, and it was it fit the bill. I enjoyed the heck out of it. End of story. End of argument. We will eventually do an Is It Yours on it. Uh, <laughs> but you, didn't give, other... you didn't give you a number two, Bill. Toby Stevens. Oh, well, th- we, oh, well, wait. He was my original, but then but then a- a- after I thought about it, I was like, no, actually, I think he would make a better number six. Yeah, that's what I thought you were presenting him as a number six all time. Well, yeah, that's that's what I was, but, but he was where I went first, and I was like, no, no, no better as so then i didn't get back to picking a number two so, so we'll, we'll put him as your number two for this week i'm keeping that on my uh yeah oh, my oh okay also. okay i didn't know there was going to be a test well the only the only thing about it is <laughs> i wanted to have a list because i want to try and this, this, we may be unsuccessful on this but i want to try and avoid duplicating duplications oh now you know, you know oh. what I, I kept getting a vibe I, I don't know why i think it's a look thing Number two kind of reminded me for some reason. I kept thinking of Dean Martin. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, Matt Helm, Dean Martin. I'm not saying the personality. <laughs> I think it would be a but whole no, just look. the way he carried himself. A little, yeah. little bit, you know. There's just again, kind of that pulled back thing that you know he wasn't really coming out there. Dean Martin was always to me. Dean Martin was one of the like the the kings of cool. Uh, and and that is you know part of that is being pulled back a little. Well, you know, if if Dean Martin had been number two, he probably would have wanted to stay on the island. <laughs> Let's have a drink. 
Everybody brainwashes somebody sometimes. So I just, you know, I can't help but watch this show and think about how much this inspired Lost. <laughs> yes. I said that to my wife. I said, you made me sit through all those years of Lost, but you can't sit through a few episodes of this. You know, the the, the sound, you know, on Lost, when they, when they would have the... Uh, the monster, whatever it was, yes. the, the sound effects that were coming and everything, you know, it, it, that, that was there. Uh, uh, you know, when they were talking about the uh, black and white thing, I remember John, you know, the character of John Locke on Lost uh, talking about the game Othello and, you know, it's black side, white side, you know, like going backgammon. to the... Backgammon. Was it backgammon? No, no, it was Othello. Is it a thought that it was backgammon? Was I... this, the discs where one side's white, one side's oh, black. Yes. Because in backgammon, I have a back, you know, I have backgammon, but my, on my board, it, it's it's cream and brown, not white and black. Wow. But anyway, on Othello, it's black and white, and and they're both, it's both colors on the same chip. So that was, you know, you know that did that. Uh, the other thing, I'm just, well, I, I guess I'm just changing the subject here, but I, I also thought, uh, you know, but the the live chessboard. Really, it made me think about if you've ever gone to like one of these uh, resorts and they have the oversized chessboard where the pieces are probably three feet <laughs> tall. Uh, and then it was making me think of Harry Potter in the first uh, movie and book when they have a, a kind of a live chess game going. Uh, I was thinking of History of the World with Mel Brooks. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. I forgot that. <laughs> Night jump queen, pawns jump queen. Everybody. Yes, the Queen's such a good sport, isn't she? <laughs> and then, but th their explanation of that—that that being live pieces gives them a sense of power. I would think it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> it gives you a sense of being controlled by others. Well, it gives the people playing the game a sense of power. Yes. Which would be the count. What um, what year do you think this is supposed to be in? The village. Because yeah, yeah, because if you think about it, the opening scene, you know, the, where we rolled the credits, where you see him driving a car and you see the hearse, you know, they're clearly older classic vehicles. You really don't see anything to, you know, tell you, oh, this is 1965. It could be 65. It could be 85, 95. I was, I, I mean, through the three episodes we've watched, I've kind of felt like it's meant to be contemporary to the time it was made. Yeah. See, I kind of feel. I mean, the village has a sense of ti timelessness, but but some of the techno the technology and the styles, like the like number two's round chair, kind of pegs it in the '60s, and with the the lava lamps. See, I kind of felt it was more in the future mm. with, you know, the round chairs and all that and the uh, cordless phones and that kind of thing. And the whole darkness attitude, you know, with it seems now that it's more than spies that are disappearing to this place. Oh, yeah, there's just hapless little guys that develop weapon system shields and wants to share it with the world and is locked away and then it accidentally gets released anyway and he's like oh this is the irony yeah and it's up. called star wars 
silly little Star Wars. It got away. So speaking of the Rook, I had an alternate casting for the character of the Rook that popped into my head. Because when I'm looking at this actor, I was like, you know, this guy reminds me of somebody else. I, I know this is a little bit above what we normally do. But I could see Brian Cox playing the part of the Rook. Everybody familiar with who Brian Cox is? We know Brian Cox. Yes. He's in X-Men 2. Yes, yep. we do. So I just that was basically more on the look of him and, and his demeanor too. I could see Brian Cox playing that, you know, which we'll get to that to where the he finds out who actually are the prisoners are and who the controllers are. And also, I had uh, two other alternate castings. One is going to be like a joke cat casting, which I'll 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 do that now. The uh, the doctor in the the hospital, we'll say. Uh, I was surprised that they could get B. Arthur. Hmm. <laughs> yes, I thought that too. Who's B. Arthur? And then uh, this one, I of course may for anyone who is uh, okay. I'm just going to say it. So the part of the queen I feel would have been very well played by Ellen Page when Ellen Page was Ellen Page. I could see that. So well, Elliot, Elliot Page, but I think a. Younger Elliot Page would have been a good choice for the Queen. Hmm. Well, you're talking Ellen is, Page also of X-Men uh, Vintage. Yes. Oh, yeah. Actually, yes. So, I guess now we'll jump into some other things and get out of our casting. Oh, I, ha- I had a casting, too. Oh, shoot. Go ahead. I'm blanking on her name. Uh, for, the, for the Queen, the actress who plays the High Commissioner... She was also on uh, the Andy Griffith show. Oh. Do you know who I mean on that oh. episode? Oh. Oh, oh. You oh, talking oh, about oh, Ellen oh, O'Donoghue? Yes. yes, you're talking about yes. Star Trek, where she played uh, with Metamorphosis, where she bonds with the, the gas cloud. The companion. The companion. The companion. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I just yeah. got a vibe like she would be. she would have been good in that role. Perhaps. So you guys still aren't you? You guys still aren't in love with Rover? Just bouncing down, you know? He's like, I'm a happy Rover. I'm going <laughs> I, I, I thought it was interesting I'm to the shit out of everybody. I thought it was so interesting to watch him. That yeah, like the the way the chess master just walked by while everybody else was like, you know, frozen. Uh, it's just it's like I ain't got time for this crap. See, there's there's always discussion and over analysis of the prisoner and everyone's like well why is he allowed to move when everyone else is freezing still well why is he i got from it <laughs> well i got from it that rover was freezing everyone to allow him to get to where he was going mm. that's possible or it's possible for some reason he disregarded it and was allowed to i would i took it as that there were some people that are more equal than others that's that's kind of what I thought. What have you been reading, Animal Farm? <laughs> if, if you want to go back forty something years, yes. <laughs> so through through the course of the chess game, we uh, we see uh, you know because of course number six is being number six, <laughs> just being obtuse. Like he loves to be. But he's out sixed by the Rook. Yes. 
who moves of his own free will. And we can't have none of that. Nope. Call for the substitute. The substitute. 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 No. Hey, okay, I heard it the first time. I was kind of lost on the uh, the whole aspect of, you know, we're going to uh, make him dehydrated. Like, I didn't really... I didn't totally get the purpose of that, you know, other than to well, torture him. It, well, I mean, it was the whole Pavlov thing that they mentioned. They, 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 they want to, they want to, they want to control him, you know, because that was the experiment to where they would make a dog salivate when they heard a bell. So what they're doing is they're conditioning him to taking orders and, and following orders by hurting him by, you know, you know, he touches one, there's nothing. He touches one, he's shocked. That was a pretty scary shock. He touches the other, there's there's nothing. And then they say, go to the blue one, obey. And he touches it and he doesn't get shocked. And then he gets his reward, he gets the water. Now, And then, then they ask him how many lights he sees. <laughs> <laughs> there are four water coolers. So, I mean, that's the whole point of dehydrating him is wanting him to get a drink and then torturing him into obeying which one and when he can go to it and when he can't. It, you know, it's all about breaking him. That's the way I see it. They, they made it, at least the way they presented it, it, it felt to me, I guess, maybe like they overstated it. That, uh, you know, they made it sound like the water was, the water in and of itself was particularly significant as opposed to just a means to... Uh, to gain his compliance. Nah, the only no, the only real significance I see in the water is the that that's what he wants his reward because they have dehydrated him. Okay, and you know this could go to Andy's thought that you know everything gets overanalyzed that you think there's meaning in everything and maybe some things you know maybe sometimes so, maybe so was it was it maybe sometimes a, a a train going into a tunnel is just a train going into a tunnel. <laughs> So you're thinking that there's something in the water as well, which there probably is. Yeah, I am. I am thinking there's something in the water, and I'm thinking that you know that that's because let me tell you, you guys ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> I'm sure Andy will back that statement up. See, I, I would also intrigued. think I would also think they wouldn't let them show uh, really like an in-depth torturing on television at that time too. Yeah. Until <laughs> next week when they're pulling his fingernails out. <laughs> yeah. Well, not far off. It's enhanced interrogation techniques. I'm still finding it kind of fascinating, like just how how they're uh, keeping order. You know, there's there's you know we're focused on number six because he's the star of our show. But in theory, at least, there are many others there that are being treated in a similar fashion. He may be the one who's got the best ability to resist, but obviously there's, you know, other people who are prisoners there. And uh, it just seems like they are so focused on him that other prisoners would be able to kind of run wild without them even being aware of it because they're, they're putting so much of their... Uh, efforts into watching him so like the logistics of it seem to not make total sense well 
Well, we're we're the way I look. We're only seeing. I mean, obviously the episode. I mean, the village has got many nuts they're trying to crack. I feel, and number six is just a little bit more important nut than the others. And then they also there's got to be so many levels to the village of keeping. You know, there's got to be the keep people in line department, break people department, <laughs> all all kinds of stuff. But what's the rules on just individuals like the young woman who they basically brainwash into? Oh being my god, that is so that is so creepy. That whole yeah. whole thing, especially when, especially when he comes out of the sh- out of the bathroom and she's like making something in the in the kitchen, and he's like, "Hello." <laughs> I thought he did that pretty good. He's like, "How did you get in?" Oh, the door. Really. <laughs> When she Bond makes would have slapped her. Yeah. Yes. And then slapped her around a bit if it was Connor. <laughs> right. That's what he did. So the fact that they just brainwashed her without consulting with anybody implies what was she? They're all is she there? Is she there for a reason? Is that <laughs> the point of the episode? Who were pawns? Who were knights? Who were kings? What's six then if he's not a pawn? Well, there's definitely the the level of you know metaphor for the uh, people there, but also just the level of deception and and everything that's going on and triple crosses and double crosses, double crosses because you misunderstand what people are because you're trying to read into their behavior. I mean, I thought that was all very clever. Mm-hmm. That yeah, because number six was too smart for his own good. Hmm. So the Queen got the old dagger of the mind treatment from Star Trek. Pretty much. And she had yeah. the neural neutralizer. <laughs> I love number six. Oh, but you love me. How could you send me away? How how can she not look at that locket? Well, I mean, he opens the locket that's around her neck, and it's got all those wires on one side of it. He's like, hmm, mind if I keep this? It also has a picture of him <laughs> looking like he's angry. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's like his default. It'd be hard press getting a picture of him where he didn't look angry. <laughs> well, I think that's the picture that's at the end of the episode when they, they, when his face comes out and the bars close. I think that's the same picture. That's at the end of every episode. Almost. Almost, well, yes. It's more, again, this is more establishing the ground rules of where he is, if we view this as being episode three, and right. more uh, trying to keep him in line with the idea that he can't escape. The paranoia of the village is such that even the ones that he thinks he can trust, he can't trust. And it works both ways. Just because he thinks that he's trustworthy doesn't mean that anyone else thinks that. Yeah, because, yeah, because like they, like number two says, they, they applied your own test to yourself and determined that you were not a prisoner it's like damn it <laughs> i set up this whole mission impossible thing and it fell apart and it, it actually you know one of the reasons why it is so clever is that it totally makes sense because the way he does carry himself is different from the other p- prisoners who you know a lot of them have kind of lost hope and they're just kind of hanging on whereas he still has such a level of confidence about him yeah, he's not been there long enough yet to be more subtle in his defiance. And he will get there. 
And it's not spoiling to say any subsequent attempts he may make to escape, perhaps he'll only rely on himself. Mm-hmm. But that runs through the entire show, this idea that perhaps the only person he can rely on is him. And how does that work in the village where they want a harmonious relationship between everybody? the people in charge and the people not in charge, but the people in charge are always wanting to let you know that they are in charge. And some number twos are more competent than others. I don't know that Peter Wingard was a particularly competent number two. He, 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 to some extent, almost seemed like a disinterested number two. Yeah. Right. He definitely wasn't as gauged as, uh, number two last week and and i don't think you know as i'm sitting here now i don't think we're ever going to get an explanation for it but i would like to know why the number two changes all the time uh like i said i think i'm going to walk away from the series and say yeah i'm still wondering why number two changes all the time Uh... well you know the thing is he, he they change and it seems like it's very close in time you know what i'm saying it's like it seems like it's... How long do you think he's been there over these so, three episodes? Well, we had... I, about six, about six weeks. We, yeah. we had the first episode where we, where we had two different number twos. So, you know, I'm thinking they could change at the drop of a hat. Well, I... Okay. Maybe Andy has an answer to this, but uh, I'm... I don't remember... It's been a long time since I've seen all of them all the way through. I don't think we really get an answer as to why the number two cha- changes. Now, in my mind, this is always this is my head canon. That for me, one of the reasons that number two changes so often is to throw off either people like McGowan or other people in the village, so that they don't know who the new number two is. Like, just to have you know just to throw them off so that they can't get used to how a certain person operates that's strictly my theory i have no proof for that that's just from my multiple watchings yeah i i think you're right i think it's just another way to keep him off balance if he doesn't know who's going to be in charge every day he can't get the measure of the person who's in charge because of six will ultimately get to the point where he can manipulate them but that would ultimately again put so much focus on him as opposed to all the other people there. Is there like maybe a number two assigned to each one of them? Because this number two seems to be fixated on, on number six. Uh, you know, and by a number two, I mean, you know, somebody of that ilk. They don't all have to be named number two. Does, yeah. Well, no, I mean, maybe there are multiple number twos, but I don't know. There's also the thing as well that goes back to Animal Farm. and you look from pig to man and man to pig, does it matter who the figurehead is? Really? Oh, no, clearly they're making it very clear that it doesn't have to be because no matter who's number two, they're all just there to give to, to, hmm. to give number six fits and frustration. See, I think it's it's just a post. Right, this week you're going to be yep. number two of the village and they go, oh, man, do I have to be? Yes. Oh, all right. Then. And so well, I was going to go to Tashi's station. And some of them are like... <laughs> Oh, fine, whatever. And they'll just do it because it's their job. Some of them take it personally. Some of them come back. Some of them don't. Mm-hmm. 
I guess I won't get out of blood. We also don't know how many camps there are like this around the world. They could do a rotation through. Yeah. Up, you hear two weeks off to wherever. From a film standpoint as well, did you notice this is the first number two to not film at Port Marion? I didn't realize that, actually. What do you mean? All, all of the Port Marion location footage was filmed in one block for something like the first three or four episodes. But once they got to this episode, the Port Marion stuff was being filmed way back. So they didn't see the point of booking an actor to come and do two or three shots in Port Marion and then have to keep that actor on hold. Oh, okay. They went back to Boreham Wood to film the interior stuff. So he is the first number two to not go to Port Marion. It's very cleverly edited. Oh, yeah, because the, the right. smoke scene, number two, drives up to six. But you don't and see all them. the Magoon stuff are filmed on location. And all of two stuff are filmed against the black wall. Mm. You're right. Yeah. So he is the uh, first number two to not go to Port Marion for location footage. Well, you know, a real a real world world reason why number two changes is so that they could have rotating guest stars, I would say, would be the real world filming reason. Yeah, but, Unless, but you want to have a corresponding Unless, fake world reason. Well, you've you've got the thing though. Then, if you want the corresponding fate world reason, how many times would it take for Six to defeat him before he just looks raging incompetent? It's mm. like the Dukes of Hazard thing. Oh at, yeah. At what point does Boss Hog just become a class as ineffectual? And, well, he always came across as ineffectual and useless, but ultimately it becomes laughable how often he's conned and tricked and they get away with it. So he's he's if Colonel Clink. Yeah. <laughs> If, if you've got a Colonel mm. Clink in charge of the village, you don't take the village seriously as a threat. If you've got a different number two every week who tries different tactics and some of them work and some of them don't, then that's more of a credible threat. Unless number two is number one's brother-in-law and then you have to keep him on the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just out of nepotism. Right. So I and also yeah I think the the real world reason is McGowan wanted as many good actors in the role of number two as possible. Mm. I like the the dirty dozen recruitment thing that goes on, <laughs> where he goes around and he's he's trying to work out who would be sympathetic to their needs. Based upon the conversation in Arrival, I'll be honest, I didn't think the guy who runs the general store would be. No, not in the least. I, w- no. I was surprised to see him. I was like, huh, okay. Well, again, he's in the location footage. I wonder if that was just a simple case of the actor was the. Hmm. Well, they would need a place to get the rope, maybe some other supplies, and him being yeah. a general store would be a good place, a good person to get that stuff from. Mm-mm. But it, I think it's more a case of he's a very passive number two in this case. He knows he's up to something, but we never get the indication that he twigs exactly what it is he's up to. Well, it also seemed that he was overconfident. Yeah, but wait. They're having you know, that big conversation. Oh, oh they're just talking about chess. Uh, they're, they're fine. Oh, look, the mic went out. Uh, we'll get it fixed. The camera went out. Yeah, send the repair group. Right. If that's if... He didn't know until the very end. What if, which we may not have seen, what if the Rook had actually told him, 
from the beginning and he was actually was confident because he already knew what number six was doing but we as the they kept that from us because he doesn't say when the rook tells him but he may have known that whole time like the rook could have gone his conditioning may have been true and as soon as he was approached by number six he could have ran straight to them and told them and they knew all along and it was just a game just to see how just to let it play out let's see how far he gets this time let's just f with him yeah and, and there's a lot of them there are quite a few episodes where they're just doing it to mess with his head sometimes literally Sometimes, literally, yes. My favourite scene in this one is um, the interrogation technique, which reminded me very much of the James Bond one. Agent provocateur. Where he's talking about... Oh. Um, yeah, where they're doing the word association with him. Yeah. All of that was really good. I particularly like the, the exchange return, game, love, game, game, tennis. And he's, <laughs> he's already turned it around on the person who's doing the questions. Hope. Anchor, the hope and anchor. It's a pub I used to drink in. <laughs> All of that stuff was brilliant. Well, also the analysis at the end. He has a disregard for safety, negative reaction to pain. Well, I, he's a spy. I, I hope those are the characteristics he's got. Yeah, you've got to wonder why they had to learn that. Surely that was in the file. Yeah. Well, and in their first exchange earlier on where uh, she's like, is he in for treatment? and uh to not yet pity interesting subject i should like to know his breaking point and then he says well you can make that your life's ambition <laughs> six has some great dialogue in this one it's like when it when she's trying to tell him uh that she's in love with him and he's like the tears don't work on me <laughs> he's proper what's his name in this he's proper obtuse he's a bastard yeah he is well that's what well, he has like to be it. because she's a, she's like <laughs> She's like that girlfriend that's hanging around. You're like, come on, I want to go hang out with the guys. You're just cramping my style. Mm. Oh, wait, wait, where'd you go? Let me fool. Like that that clingy ex-girlfriend. And this is a girlfriend he didn't know he had. It's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> but you gave me this locket. I did. Oh. And then he realizes, okay, this, this bitch is crazy. <laughs> or she's not in her right mind. Something's going on here. She's messing uh, with me. I mean, me. they basically turned her into just like a lovesick puppy. Mm-hmm. You know, you will yeah. you will long to be near him. You will follow him everywhere. You know, she's stealing. She's stealing little. You know, the little. What is it? A mook? A moke? A mini mook. Uh, you know. Uh, it it that honestly didn't come off as as genuine as what I would have hoped. It almost felt like in a sitcom when they have a love formula or whatever, you know, like a love potion. Yeah, like a love potion. Yeah. Like it was a little, just a little touch over the top. I think they could have pulled that back a little bit and it would have been more, uh, more effective. But, you know, one of the things we've talked about with reviewing various shows is you do have certain time constraints. And to make that more mm. subtle, I think they would have had to add a little bit more dialogue to it and you probably would have had to give it another minute. Uh, to to show her her level of obsession without it being over the top, so I don't know if if logistically it was possible they might have had to sacrifice a little bit of realism just to get the point across and move on. I thought it was right in line with Kirk and Tiger in the Mind's Eye. 
Mm. Oh, uh, one thing that popped up in this episode I don't think I noticed before, but I think I'll hear later in the show. The musical cue of Pop Goes the Weasel. It's all over the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think we had brought it up in our discussions, but it's, you know, it's it's, it's not always, it's like a, it's like a jazzy do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
What do you think those guys on the rotating cameras are actually doing in the uh, control center? Trying not to be dizzy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't have had that sushi at lunch. (laughs) And all the green lights flashing. Shut off that giant lava lamp over there. Oh, my God, I'm going to puke. Yeah, the, only other, the only thing that I've got is the actual ending, which is one of the better oh. endings that we've seen yeah. so far. With the, where he uh, actually gets on the boat, and the, it's shot as though number two is sat on the boat. And it's only when it pulls back you see that he's on the camera. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 when he first spins around. Yeah, and they realise that they've, they've played both of them against each other. That Six was genuine and the Rook was genuine. But because they don't trust each other, because nobody trusts anybody. Yeah, it's all gone pear-shaped. And and six six sails back to the village with Rover in tow. And then they bring out, and then they, that music just rises up, and the butler brings the, the pawn and sets it mm. back back into position that number six was on on the board in the beginning of the episode. Did you yeah. catch that? I did, yeah. I thought that was really clever. Because the ending, the ending really works exceptionally well. It's that he, his air of authority and the, the, that he comes across as being just as obtuse as the people in charge backfired against him. Which may be, because maybe why it's so hard for them to break him. Yeah. The only other thing about the stagey boat fight at the end looks mm. slightly less cinematic quality than the rest of it because that was added in later when the episode was running low yeah so when the episode was running short on time they added another fist fight you know <laughs> you know I'm just thinking you know reviewing the episode in my mind I I think the signal in the episode that this is a, a fool's errand you know that he's doomed to failure is they show you the scene with number two in the karate outfit and I'm assuming he's got a black belt. He's supposed to be a black belt. And he chops the board. When they come in to capture him, and he kind of just gives up. He puts his hands in front of him yeah, to tie him up like it's all over. See? Because he already knew. Right, right. Because Rook had already told him. Yeah. That's my theory. And that that's what I'm throwing in, that the karate scene is to show you, hey, he could have mm-hmm. put up some fight and maybe beat him but oh no you've got me <laughs> oh oh no Ken's coming to kill <laughs> <laughs> is there any significance to the name Palatska uh, you know I tried to look it up but I, I didn't find anything Mm-mm. all I can think is uh, Leslie Nielsen in uh the Naked Gun when he's uh, Enrico Palazzo. Yes. He saved the queen, you know. Yes, from Reggie Jackson. <laughs> Let's hear it for that queen. And, and I mean, I know we're just, you know, just randomly going places, but I love when they bring the queen down to his seats and there's two people sitting in them. <laughs> yeah, yes. Anyway. Uh, we ready to rate this, or do we have anything else? I'm good. 
Okay, uh, you brought it in, Bill, uh, so why don't you go first? Yeah. Uh, I think I this is definitely going to be, I'm going to rate this a, a six, six broken pieces of balsa wood. I, as we were talking about before we started recording, uh, this is a show that I think if I was watching it just in a vacuum, I might have given up on it. And and part of that is just because of I've been conditioned over the years to watch shows where I can just kind of multitask while I'm watching them because they're not overly complex and there's not a, a real lot of symbolism going on in the background. This show requires my attention. Otherwise, I have no clue what's going on. Um, and to some extent, I think if I were watching this without a forum to discuss it or, uh, you know, for our listeners, you know, at least they have us or they, they feel like maybe they're discussing it. But if I was just watching it in a vacuum by myself, I think I might have given up on it. And I have to say, I'm really happy that you guys are doing this because I do get a lot out of it as long as we, as long as we are able to do it as a communal project like we are. Uh, this episode I thought was particularly fascinating in its own way. Uh, I just... I have a tough time coming up to a six on anything just yet. And, and maybe in hindsight, I might give this one a six. But coming into it, I had it rated as a 5.5, and I'm going to leave it there. It, it must be a newbie thing because, again, I'm right with you. I These episodes, you know, we've done other shows together. I, I watch the thing once, and I take notes. With this program, I watch it once and then have to watch it a second time to take the notes to make sure I'm getting everything. And uh, nah, I find it fascinating, and it helps to discuss it. And I'm right with you. I give it a five point. I give it five and a half blinking lights. There are five and a half lights! <laughs> well, water coolers, however you want to take it. Uh, I'm 5.5 on this one, but for a completely different reason. In Whenever people talk about The Prisoner, this is the, the episode that they remember, because it is visually very striking, and it's got the centrepiece of the human chessboard and all of that, which is at Port Marion, if you want to go and have your photo to fit on it and such. But watching it again here, I think that it's, it's it feels a little bit padded, even before I knew that they had to do some reshots to bring the running time up a bit. And I was a little bit disappointed in Jason Wingard as number two, mm. which is a shame because I like Wingard and I like him in other stuff. And I didn't think he was as strong a number two as we'd seen so far. And also, this is where the benefit of knowing what's coming up can sometimes hurt you in the idea that I know there are better number twos coming. I I felt he was a bit more passive in this particular adventure he was letting the doctors and the psychiatrists and everybody else guide him as to what he should be doing rather than number two being at the forefront of the ideas on how to get what they need to get out of number six and ultimately this just comes across as another one of those failed escape episodes of which there are quite a few some of which are better than this one but it's still a 5.5 because it's still the prisoner Okay, so that's what we think, but what does Blaine say? Hi guys, this may be my favorite episode so far. I understand that the BBC probably bumped it to episode 2 because it would grab an audience effectively, 
but it's definitely a different relationship with number two than in the previous episodes, so it is out of narrative order. I doubt number six actually trusted number eight so much as he knew he could use her. His conversation with number two as number eight woke up is exceptional. It's hard to do more than gush, though. I have a lot of questions about both the village and number six, plus the outside governments and their involvement, but there isn't much to do but watch for clues to answers which may or may not come. I did wonder about the time zone being the solution to the case. Accurate, sure, but I thought it was Big Ben chiming twice that would have clued him in. Perhaps Andy can tell us if that part is accurate or not. And finally, for those of us watching on iTunes, the next episode, Free For All, is listed as episode four. So that's what Blaine says. The question to us now is, what are we doing next time? Next time on The Village Idiots. I think we might be in England because, wait, is that the chimes of Big Ben? exact replica of her own room. Who are these people? Why are they here? Why are you? There are some people who leave this place and some who do not leave. You are obviously staying. Big Ben? Yeah. Have you got a wife in England? No. The village? The village is a place where people turn up. People who have resigned from a certain sort of job have defected or have been extracted. The specialized knowledge in their heads is of great value to one side or the other. Are you sure you haven't got a village here? Don't miss this exciting adventure in The Prisoner starring Patrick McGowan. All right. I can't comment at all because I have not seen that, but when I do, I'll have comments. But in the meanwhile, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is you. Who are you? The village people. Who are the supervisor, Paul Spataro. The chess master, Dave Pascarella. Rover, Dr. Bill Robinson. And Andrew Leyland as the butler. The village people investigating the prisoner.